Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Namaste, Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide, where we set out to uncover the good stuff in a world that doesn't always feel so good. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called On The Ball. If you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We love making it and we love you for keeping on spreading the word about it. And today's theme is football. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the first recorded use of the word football was back in 1424. It was in an act forbidding it. Soccer was originally spelt S-O-C-C-A, soccer, a late 19th century Oxbridge slang term that was created as a shortening of the word association, as in association football, soccer. And the world's smallest football league is the Isles of Silly Football League. There are just two teams and they play each other for the entire season. How silly. Apparently there are more traffic accidents in Asia the day after important football matches in Europe because Asian fans stay up to watch the game, then they're so knackered the next morning they screw up driving on the roads. And the fastest ever red card in football occurred just two seconds into a match when striker Lee Todd remarked, fuck me, that was loud, when the whistle went to start the game and was immediately shown a red card. Where are you? Those look like very sweet little babies who probably yeah, they're, have babies they're my, they're, they're my children. It would be odd if they were other people's <laughs> children. That's my guest today, Chris Sutton. Here's one for Chris, a Norwich City man. The winter of 1962 and 63 was so cold that Norwich City Football Club had to defrost their pitch using flamethrowers. I should add that Chris wasn't playing for them at the time, mainly because he wasn't born by then. When football matches first started to be filmed using those artificial intelligence cameras which track the ball during play, viewers watched an early game in Inverness where they saw one camera repeatedly confusing the ball with a bald-headed linesman. In 2020, a South Korean football club had to apologise after filling their stadium's empty seats with sex dolls in order to make it appear less empty. What a night! And the Danish for mullet is Bundesligaha. Sorry, that might not be pronounced correctly. Bundesligaha, which means the hair of a German football player. 
we're, we're country folk. So, you know, that's what we do in the country. That's, you just you know, keep just... shagging. Chris Sutton is a former Premier League footballer turned pundit and commentator since retiring from the game in 2007. His high-profile playing career spanned 16 years, during which time he played for Norwich City, Blackburn Rovers, Chelsea, Celtic, Birmingham City and Aston Villa. He scored over 150 career goals in over 400 league appearances in the English and Scottish Premier Leagues, and he was capped by England. In the podcast, he talks openly about his famously tough time playing for Chelsea following their controversial payment of a whopping £10 million transfer fee. This is my first footballing guest, and you might, in fact you definitely will, notice that my football knowledge isn't quite up to snuff, despite having gone to a boys' school. But me and Chris do not let that come between us. We talk about ice baths, stage presence, March birthdays, sport, community, getting uncomfortable, cold water swimming, Norfolk, dads, kids, rejection, comebacks, Alan Shearer, mental health, gaming and money. I ran a session recently which Chris attended where I help pro sportsmen and women hone their keynote speaking skills and I started by asking him if he had put any of my pearly wisdom into play yet. I did my first gig um, a few weeks ago, actually. Did you? And how was it? Uh, no, really nerve-wracking. Uh, that was at St George's Park, um, the the uh, where England. Yeah, trained. I've done a couple there. Yeah. Have you? Yeah. So I I was really nervous on the drive across, um, uh, and it was in front of about 150 students, and I was there to uh, to inspire them. And actually, it went well. It did it it did go really really well uh which you know i've done a bit of after dinner stuff but that's that's it's obviously keynote speaking is completely different to yes. uh to after dinner stuff and there were there uh you know it's not just talking about tapping one in at the far post and the boy did well and we were over the moon uh you know there are there are messages which uh which which i got out there and i no, i thought i was really pleased actually and um it doing the whole keynote course uh was so interesting for me and it's actually given me a big boost in in my whole uh sort of outlook on things and my life at this moment in time where you know i work hard in the in the broadcasting injury uh industry and the uh and you know with writing and commentating uh but it, it it's something different and it uh it made me think in the week which we did with the likes of yourself coming in and uh it, it it was so so helpful. I can't I can't tell you how helpful it was, and, and you know it's given me a lot of food for thought. It was exhausting up at six in the morning. Yeah, it seemed exhausting uh, the schedule because I just rolled in for an afternoon. I just got the easy bit, didn't I? You just came, yeah came in and got your check in and out. And exactly. Uh, you, I don't think I even you, did any work. Did I even stay in the room? I think I was like, here's here are my bank details. Good night. So <laughs> yeah, they're lovely gigs if you can get them like that. No, but. Uh, I, th- I thought we, you know, we learned a lot from you. I thought about stage presence and, uh, you know, and I thought you were really funny and I still do because you made me blush before we, you know, before we got on, <laughs> on air today, didn't you? So uh, I did. It, no, we won't, it, we won't include that bit. <laughs> it was, 
you can do if you like. I don't care. <laughs> but it was it was it was really very very helpful because. Uh, I mean, I'm nearly I'm nearly fifty now. Yeah, I was and... looking I was looking you up, and I realised that your fiftieth oh. is next year because you're you're but yeah. I'm um seventeenth of March and you're tenth of March. We're not the same age. Not though, the same age. You're right. No, Don't I, look so I, horrified, I Chris. Yeah, I am it, older it, than you. It's all right. Are you? Yeah, I'm older than you. Yeah. I, do you know? Well, there you go. I, I wouldn't have believed that. Okay. Yeah, I am. I, I've had my fifty a little while ago. Obviously, the lighting in this laundry cupboard is extremely flattering. <laughs> so yeah, so that's a bit. That's a big one, right? How are you feeling about getting to fifty? Um. Yeah, I'm not. You know, not really. Not really bothered. A footballer year is like dog years because you pack so much into the first like 20, 30 years of your life. So does that mean by the time you're 50, you're like an 80 year old normal person? Possibly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but the, the sort of beauty of everything is uh, and this course in particular was I thought I knew everything um, and then realised that uh, after the week that I knew absolutely nothing or very, very little, uh, which... So what Which were the is, things you thought you knew? You mean about speaking or about life or because it was quite yeah, a, it was quite an in-depth course, wasn't it? The stuff you guys did. It wasn't just learning to speak well on a stage. No, it, it was. And uh, and uh, I mean, keynote speaking is, is, you know, we well know is different to after dinner stuff. But, you know, about the, the sort of link from going from sport and and, um, and and the stories and how to how to move over into business and things we learned from y- yourself. I don't want to spoil the course for anybody else who's going to go on it. And they, because it was all a surprise, all these things. Yes. So we didn't know you, we didn't know you were coming in. We didn't know like the previous couple of days who was, who was coming in. These were all things which took us out of our comfort zone, but these, these were all things where, um, which, which have helped me massively in terms of my outlook and my delivery and what is required to make a a keynote speech and also finding out things uh, which I would never have thought were relevant at all. Um, Just because I played football and just talk about football, uh, you know, that's that's my job. But things... uh, from my personal life which have which are very relatable to keynote speaking and uh and 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 messages this just things from my past which i wouldn't have thought at the start of the week would ha- have any relevance and yet you with the, the other people i was on the course with uh you stumble across things and you find things out about yourself and uh, uh and people um and and that's why you know it's given me it's given me a lot of food for thought what we did do uh, at the start of every day we went we did these breathing exercises and ice baths and i don't know whether you've seen the that sounded horrendous to me the idea of doing anything at six in the morning as a comedian is not good but doing <laughs> anything doing something at six in the morning in an ice bath you lost me there yeah well, you're, you're normally finishing up then about six. Exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, all, all us 53-year-old comedians, we're out painting the town red after we get off stage for sure. You've already read about me on the, on the Sun's gossip pages. But the, um, but so you would do, so what was the drill without, I hope we're not spoiling it for anyone who does it, but it's, so you do, so it's in 6am, you, but you get in an ice bath with the other people you're on the course with around you. No, we- we don't all jump in the same ice bath. No, but you but go in in turn yeah. and, and people not, see it's you. It's not like the good old days of football <laughs> where we all jumped 
in a bath with a with a with a, a pint of lager and sang songs. <laughs> so I mean, there was, was no lager or singing. No, it sounds all bloody waste of time. So you go. <laughs> so you so you take it in turns to go into the ice bath. Yeah, it's all to do with your breathe. Uh, like so, we're going to we do breathing exercises and um, and on the first morning, I was thinking if anybody could see me lying on a mat. Uh, listening to this music, doing these breathing exercises, people who I've played with, they they would think I've gone mad. Uh, and then you'd use the breathing exercises when you got into the ice bath, so you'd control your breathing. So it's it, you know for for on stage, of course, you, you know you're you're on stage a lot and, and and talking, and it's about controlling your breathing to to stop you getting anxious. And uh, and now I uh, I do it every day now. Actually, the ice baths. And I go, do you really? I in, yeah, I do. Yeah, and I live near the sea, so I I, I, I was in the sea for twelve minutes yesterday. Uh, and I should and say I go, we're recording this in April for anyone who listens to it another time. So that's pretty cold in the sea, still in yeah, the UK. It, it's it's really cold, and um, so yes, yeah, so I'm up to twelve minutes now, and that's and that's pretty good. My wife is really unhappy though because there's sand. I come back and you can't get rid of sand, can you? And there's sand all over the carpets and the bathroom and uh and then yeah so i come back and have a have a warm shower to try and heat up and have a cup of tea and just say i'm i'm really cold to my wife for the rest of the day and that's that's constitutes flirting nowadays i guess after so long in a marriage and she's like yeah great is um do you never do, looked at it like that <laughs> do you go in the so your ice bath is going in the sea you're not actually running an ice bath no no, because that's what I was wondering when enough. you said I do it every morning. I was like, Jesus Christ! What you get an ice, you get a bath run. So it's not it's 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 a sea dip that you're doing. Yeah, Chroma. Have you ever been? Have you ever? I have. Been, yeah, I have been to Chroma. Have you performed at the pier at Chroma. I have performed. I must have done. If I performed in Chroma, I guess that's where I'd have performed. Yeah, I have performed in Chroma, so that must be where I performed. Yeah, but it's quite a while ago now. Yeah, I do do stuff in your neck of the woods now and again. They are very good. Yeah. 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 So I live. I live about a mile and a half from from the from Chroma from the very nice is that where you did you grow up near there you could probably tell from my accent um Norfolk accent so I was brought up in in Norfolk yeah just just in a little village outside Norwich uh Norwich okay near Norwich airport nice uh, so yeah so I was a uh, uh, went to a little village school there and uh but no it's nice 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 place to grow up really that's why I moved you know I moved back here to be near my uh my parents and uh and I think it's a nice place to bring up my children. So did you have, because I've never had a footballer on Namaste Motherfuckers before. And the, part of the reason for that is I know absolutely Namaste Motherfucking fuck all about football. So, um, but I am really interested in the life of a footballer and what you do, I guess, crucially, the career reinvention that has to happen really early on if you are a footballer. But just take me through for a minute so you obviously are you know from what I gather a prolific goal scoring you know Premier League footballer and you mm. played for big clubs you you scored a lot of goals right you scored uh, some goals you did score some, some goals some and some and some you know I think you've been really kind there and and you know many people when they hear me commentate would say I know nothing about football as well and I've been sort of working in the industry for the best part of 30 years uh, but no, I, I had a I had a good career. I had a career which I read something you know, about you having you um and it would help. I can't get my notes to load in my laundry cupboard, so I'm going off memory. But something about the head glancing 
like what's that about? You're, yeah, you're that a head glancing that was legend. Wikipedia. But yeah, Wikipedia but... have got a lot of facts <laughs> about me wrong. Well, so what is uh, so are you not a head glancer, whatever that is? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um no, I could use my feet as well. Just because I'm tall, I think that people associate because you're tall, you you know, you you head the ball a lot. And um so so yeah, I was quite you know, I was quite good. I was I was versatile, uh, so so I could use my head. But when I say I was versatile, I could play a number of different positions. Uh, I could play as a defender, the as a centre forward, um, jack of all trades, you might say. Um, I, I don't know, maybe nast, uh, master of none. Chelsea. I'm glad you could use play. your feet though. When you say I could use my head, but I could also use my feet. I'm guessing that's a prerequisite for the job when you're a footballer, being able to use one's feet. Yeah, that that's you know quite important. Yeah. yeah, high up on the list of key attributes. And so when you so did you get? I know your dad played football and your brother played mm. football, but you got to I think a, a sort of level beyond where they got to. And how does that happen then? So do you get kind of scouted when you're a kid? How, how do you go from doing what you were doing at the village school to being a Premier League footballer? Well, uh, well, my dad was a huge influence. Uh, on me. My dad was a professional footballer for Norwich City, Chester, Carlisle, but he was he was also my PE teacher at school. Oh, was he? My oh, dad. I'm a, I'm a, I think we came up, this came up when we met in Manchester. I'm also the child of teachers. Yeah, yeah so so that was, I mean, it's it's quite odd being that child at school when, you, when your parents are teacher, but my dad never, he, he wouldn't ever do anything to favour me. He would, he would do the opposite. <laughs> in many ways, because he didn't want anybody to think that I was getting, you know, privileges uh, and what have you. But he had a, he had a big influence on me. And uh, because when I went to Norwich, I went on a trial at Norwich City when I was 12. I, w- I mean, I'm six foot three now. My my best asset was that I was quite sort of lanky. Yeah. Uh, and that and that was about that. And they, I got released from Norwich. They said I wasn't good enough. Um uh, to get a uh, a contract at that particular time it was a schoolboy contract. I got released, uh, and then I never really thought about football for the next three or four years. But my dad, my dad's influence then on just my whole uh, life and and the importance of training and maximising uh, what I had through physical sessions um, and just practice, practice, practice. I used to you know do. Every morning used to take me into school early. Unfortunately for me, uh, we used to have to leave the house at 20 to 7 in the morning uh, because my dad selfishly wanted to prepare for the day at school. So I had nothing else to do other than to go in a gymnasium and kick a ball against the wall. And I actually think those years at high school, kicking a ball against the wall and all the all the physical practice, we used to do um, uh, fitness circuits every morning as well. And I think with those years and my dad pushing me, put me in really good uh, stead when I got another opportunity to go on trial. Was it just you doing the fitness circuits or all of you at school? No, there were were, uh, local kids, uh, keen, um, sporty kids who would come in, obviously went to the school and, and, and some teachers. And so, I mean, you know, and that, that's, that's, just shows the as you well know the importance of a good teacher and 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 you know it wasn't just my dad but the teachers we had at the school at that particular time I think that they shaped a lot of a lot of uh, children's lives have gone on to do pretty well for themselves because of you know the the teacher's influence for example Saturday morning football I, I just went to a um, 
a state school. But we used to have a really good football circuit uh, in and around Norwich. But that was voluntary from the teachers. They would give up their Saturday mornings to, to you know, take the kids to other schools to play. I think that's a really, you know, important thing. Without that, the, cir- the school circuit was really strong at that particular time. And we used to play other sports as well, cricket, football. I mean, it's an amazing upbringing, really, to be part of all that. You don't realise it at the time, but looking back and, and, and thinking, you know, these teachers giving up their hours and, and their time, and it impacted so many kids, uh, you know, from from my era. And the one thing about my dad, you know, he's passed away now, uh, sadly, but there, as is normal at a lot of schools, that you know, there's there's, there's a, always a rogue element, the sort of bad boys. And but but the bad boys, my dad always found a way of getting them on side and encouraged them. Uh, into sport and the importance of sport and so since since he's passed away the the messages um, we've had from from people you know everything super positive about his influence and the way they've they've gone on from those years at Helston High School it was it was called and and you know the impact which which he had so you know that's the lovely thing about being I know my my parents get stuck to a lot they live in Dorset still where they taught and I know that really frequently they'll meet somebody at a supermarket or you know obviously they they were teaching there for many many years and there's they'll people although they do also always make the mistake they listen to this so sorry mum and dad but they're always like you know blah 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 don't you they were were they in your class and I'll be like how old are they and they're like 32 I'm like well probably not no I probably don't know or sometimes they're 72 and either way I'm like no I was not in that person's class but I'm wondering, listening to you, if my parents haven't been language teachers. I hear I am sitting in a broom cupboard in Amsterdam with my brilliant, useful uh, speaking Dutch skill. And there you are in a footballer's mansion in uh, Norfolk. So all I'm saying is, mum and dad, <laughs> you let me write down. Uh, so, <laughs> And did you, so getting rebuffed, um, going back to the, when you were, it was Norwich, you said that did yeah. that turned you away for the schoolboy, what's that called when you get? It, it was like, a, a, so in a, a schoolboy forms, it was an association with the club at the age of yeah. 12 where you know you're actually associated with a professional football club that was always the dream yeah and you're, it, I know you say you have limited Norwich of uh, not knowledge of Norwich probably and and football but you know nowadays um, you know kids will start off at six years old and you know go up through the system and in many ways I've got mixed views about that because not that we're going to turn this into a football podcast hopefully but I think if you go up through the system and you get to 16 and then you have that rejection, it's very difficult to overcome those all those years you, you know, you've spent with that dream uh, of, of becoming a footballer. And then you have that that knockback and, you know, the success rate of, you know, kids who um you know, are attached to football clubs. You know, every year there are there are dozens and, and dozens of kids who will have an association with a football club and go up through the system. But then what happens to them at 16? If you it know, doesn't they, come they, off. They get, yeah. yeah, it doesn't come off. And, you know, they've had their whole life dreaming about becoming a footballer. It doesn't work. And football, a lot of football clubs don't let kids play other sports. It's football or nothing. So, you know, I think I was lucky in many respects that I was released from Norwich at that age because I could play a lot of other sports and had a brilliant sort of upbringing from the ages of 12 to 16, table tennis, tennis, basketball, cricket, you know, it's a really, you know, it, 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 it's, it's good to play 
you know, different range of sports and do different activities. I, you know, I, I do think that. When you see, because you were talking about doing at your speech at um, St. George, it's called St. George's Park. St. George's it? Park. Yeah. yeah. And I've done a couple of, um, as I say, a couple of corporates there, nothing to do with football, I might add. And both times when I got there, I was like, I think there's been a booking error. Like, why am I here? Because um, I can't remember. I think they can just hire out bits of it for other corporate kind of dues, can't they? But it did strike me both times that everything, even the rooms you stay in, I don't know if you stayed over at, I think it's the Hilton they've got on site there. Yeah. And the rooms are like just completely football themed. There's pictures on the walls of kind of famous football players. And I, and the parents of those kids, they all know each other. They clearly are just there the whole time while their kids do whatever training they're doing. And, and it's a complete other world to me. My son never took to sports at all. My daughter actually played, it's hearing you talk. She was um, at Camden in, in a school, a state school in Camden. And it just happened that one of the mums there was a really avid football player. And so she set up girls football from the age of seven for them. And they all played football and my daughter was captain of the team by her last year there and it was a massively confidence building brilliant thing for her to do apart from that mm. she was doing sort of ballet and figure skating and things that were more gender stereotypically female but then when she got to secondary school, she ended up, um, they, they just put all the girls in the secondary school because they didn't have many girls playing football. It, it was an 11-year-old and an 18-year-old. And she went mm. to two of those. And she just said, I'm just terrified. It's just horrible. And I thought, of course you're terrified. You're like in a new school. It's terrifying enough being a year seven kid in a new school, let alone on a football pitch. But so I did have a tiny bit of exposure to what it was to be a football mum when I was supporting my daughter. And they had a, um, a, a link with Arsenal ladies because we knew it was near Arsenal. So, but but what I didn't have was anything like that involvement that those parents were having at, when I saw them at St. George's Park. And it it's like the whole family is going, right, we are focusing on you. This kid is going to do football, 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 football in the hope that what, at 16, they get signed to a major club? Is that yeah. the, yeah, that's what, yeah. The, that's what the end goal. So that's a bit kind of shit or bust, isn't it? Because you either do or you don't, presumably. Yeah, um, and... I you know, I think a lot of the parents can be a problem as well because they have these dreams for the kids and, you know, can become extremely pushy and it becomes... They were very warm. pushy at the breakfast buffet at both times. I was yeah. like, oh, sharp elbows. I just had a bit of fruit salad and went back to my room. <laughs> In fairness, that, that's, that's not just football. That's any buffet bar. <laughs> that's breakfast buffet. So there's other people, yeah. yeah. But, but no, I do I do think that, that you know, that, that it can be an issue. I, I, I just think it, you know, it can be so hard for for kids who have the dream to then get that rejection. And I know that the football clubs that uh, need to be careful the way I word this, but they, there are support mechanisms when they are released as such, but I don't know how helpful that they actually are. You know, I, you know, I, I what, what am I trying to say? I'm, I'm not so sure it's a good thing to have that attachment uh, from a really young age and go up through the football ladder uh, because you know these kids don't have a life, and then at sixteen, when there's the when there's the rejection, they've had this dream. What do they do? You know, it's it's very difficult. I think back to you know, I I didn't expect to become a footballer because I'd had the rejection and I was sulking and a you know and a, and a big baby. I'd actually got a job as a clerk at Norfolk County Council uh, after my GCSE year, uh, so I was prepared to do that. And then I got lucky with the trial. <laughs> Uh, and got on and never really looked back. Namaste, motherfuckers. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So when you talk about that then, so those two things, so to you, they're just part of your background, but they're, so first of all, the rejection as a teenager you said you were sulking like a big baby but that must have been to get so close to something you really wanted and then have it taken away from you at an age when you don't necessarily have the resources to know how to be resilient emotionally or the capacity to tell people you're feeling shit when you're how did you cope with that then well that was that was the beauty of my dad really uh and um and him uh pushing me and I say pushing me in, in, in a nice way to maximize uh everything which i did through training uh because he he was always a lover of sport he grew up with sport but the benefits of sport and playing to the best level which i possibly could so my mindset at 16 uh in my last year at school i wasn't thinking about becoming a professional footballer because i thought that chance had gone was just i love playing sport so i was i was happy i got a job at norfolk county council i was happy to go and play cricket locally. I was part of a cricket club, nice social um, sort of atmosphere at the cricket club. I used to go there and roll the wicket and be- become part of the ground staff and they were, you know, nice people. And the same with football. It, you know, it, it, I, I was just so enthusiastic about playing sports. And my dad basically wanted me to play to the highest level, which I possibly could, not necessarily uh, as a professional, but, but the importance of putting everything into to what you do. So when I first used to do the sort of circuits at school in the morning, uh, because I didn't think I was going to be a, a professional footballer, I used to not put everything in. I used to sort of sulk around and my dad sort of said to me, you know, you're embarrassing yourself. All these other kids are coming in and, and doing the best and, you know, you're not putting it in. And he told me that, uh, you know, I was embarrassing him as well. He's the teacher. You know, it's not a good look for him to see his, you know, his his son not trying so then his lazy lump son so did that make you because sometimes when parents tell you things you can either go with what they tell you or completely against can't you so it sounds like you went with your dad's advice ultimately yeah because I I uh, I never want I I always I mean I love my dad and I I never would have wanted to let him down so that was actually a big deal but then I but then I actually I mean it's it's funny because you know I've got six kids now and I try and give them advice and the benefit of experience um and sort of there's often where often occasions where I know they don't sort of believe what I'm telling them. And at the, at the time, I, you know, I basically sort of cottoned on to the importance of training and my sports, my level um, in sport just started to go through the roof. I started to get better, stronger, you know, physically. And that because you were putting big, your back into it because, yeah, because I, you know, over, over weeks and months, uh, I really started to benefit from the training which I was doing and, you know, just basically kicking a ball against the wall. And I mean, there's this, you know, thing called, I don't know if you've heard of this, the 10,000 hour. Uh, I have, rule. yeah, Malcolm yeah, Gladwell. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I do, I do think, look, you know, now I've stopped playing, you know, looking back and thinking, blimey, you know, all that kicking I did against the wall, I was, I was doing more than most kids in the, well, definitely more than most kids in the game, getting up every morning and kicking a ball for 35 minutes against a wall. That's, you know, the amount of kicks I would, I would have done every morning. I would have been, 
you know, building up my skill set all the time. And I think my dad was aware of that, but that wasn't to become a professional footballer. It was just, you know, do the best as you possibly can at anything. And and that's that's part of the journey. And that's sort of one thing which I've I've really learned. And I've had a you know I had a good career, but I had things which didn't go well I had a you know a nightmare for a season at Chelsea where I went for big money and I uh yeah because that was a big that was a 10 million pound deal yeah yeah and uh, then you and moved I, to and then you were there a year just over a year I was there yeah. I signed a six-year contract and yeah. I you know I, I was you know I was hopeless but from so I'd moved I did well at Norwich and I moved to Blackburn which was was for uh, British Blackburn Rovers have you ever worked in Blackburn I probably have. I've pretty much worked everywhere. If they'll give me 20 quid and a beer token, I'm there. So so they were were the sort of uh, the Manchester City back in the day. The the owner was a guy called Jack Walker, who who, uh, was a big steel magnet, um, built his his fortune up from from nothing. He was a local guy, but he started to spend money on on the best young players around. And I was one of those at that particular time at Norwich, went to Blackburn Rovers, won the Premier League. With a guy called Alan Shearer, you must have heard of Alan Shearer. Oh, I think that rings a bell. Yes, yeah. I do know who Alan Shearer is. So, I mean, I don't well, know I much his... about football, but I do know the headlines. Yeah. There you go. So I was his partner. Uh, so we we like played up front together and uh, had a, had a good partnership, and and things went pretty well. And then you know everything was going well, and then Chelsea came, moved for big money there, and it that hit me. I lost a bit of confidence. Uh, and Was I, it the pressure I, I, of the big deal? So you suddenly had all eyes on you and it was a big deal and it was well publicised or, or, or what was it? Or you just didn't like Stamford Bridge? <laughs> By the way, my well, first boyfriend was a Chelsea supporter, my first ever, ever boyfriend. Really? So, And he took me, I was only 16, he took me to a match. It was Chelsea-Ipswich at Stamford Bridge. So you might be able to guess why I've never really, ca- I mean, that was terrifying. Yeah. That would have been in about, I don't know, 85 and I never, was, never had you down to have a posh boyfriend. Uh, he definitely wasn't posh. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yes, you'll mm. imagine what he was like. Uh, so that's another story. So, although he is in Ukraine right now helping out. So a fair play oh. to the guy. See, I've kept in touch, yeah. touch with him. But um, but obviously that was a very different club to the club you joined when you joined Chelsea. But what was it then, do you think? Because you had a 16-year-long playing career with massive kind of success in many, many ways. So what do you think happened mm. in that switch when you went to Chelsea? Um, I think it's like any... Not, not so to say it's like anything. I, you know, I can only sort of tell you sort of my story. It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't the pressure of the move because I'd moved for a British record transfer fee. You know, the highest ever player when I'd moved from Norwich to Blackburn. Yeah. But I'd moved from Blackburn to uh, Chelsea after five years at Blackburn for a lot of money, and it's the expectation. And I was a striker. You're expected to score goals, and if you don't score goals. You're a dud if somebody pays ten million pounds for you. And does it become I, a self-fulfilling prophecy then? Because the more you don't score goals, the more you're like, I've really got to pull it back in this yes. game, and then you don't again, and, and it just gets harder and harder. Yeah, there, and, and I think that's right. And uh, and then the doubt kicks in, and hesitation. And if you hesitate playing sport at the highest level, you're a goner. And I would tell myself, I, you know, and I cared deeply, you know doesn't matter what you're being paid and people have this perception well they're a footballer they don't you know they don't care they're getting vast amounts of of money it doesn't really work like that I mean it sort of killed me a bit uh Chelsea in uh in how low I got at times because I wanted to do well I'd had this you know really good career up until Chelsea and then I'd fallen off a cliff 
and uh, it sort of you know it it it, it did affect me. But uh, did you tell anyone so when that's happening? Because and that was obviously that was what twenty not quite twenty years ago. How long ago was was that? So that that would have been two uh, ninety nine two thousand. Yeah, so a long, okay, long time so twenty odd time. years ago. Yeah, yeah. I can always date things back to when I was having kids. I remember my first one was born in 97 and I know how old he is. That's about the only way I can do the maths of years. So just before I had my son, um, no, just after I'd had my son, not that that was a part of your life, but just for the record, everyone. But um, but so in that regard, when you're having, because I know there's more talked about in terms of mental health with footballers now and indeed with men in general. I had um, a brilliant guy on the podcast a couple of weeks ago called Tom Chapman, who set up a thing called the Lions Barber Collective, um, because that's one of the only places it's been found that men have kind of actually slightly more intimate conversations because they see their barber every few weeks. It's quite an intimate act to be there, someone sort of touching your hair and doing stuff and you're not making direct eye contact, but you are in close conversation. So it was really interesting hearing his perspective about men and men talking about mental health. And obviously there are huge problems with young men's mental health and young men committing suicide because mm-hmm. they don't have anywhere to go when there are mental health battles. So was there any thought 20 odd years ago in a club like Chelsea that you might need any kind of emotional, psychological support, either informally or formally when things were going so di- so difficultly, difficultly for you mm. I, I think that's a you know it's a really interesting uh topic i mean back uh when i first started it was you know you just you just got to get on on with it that's you know good or bad you got to find a way and this, the whole football environment was pretty brutal um you know you're competing with other players for you know in in the youth team you know, when I first started, you're part of a team, of course, but you're competing against other players for contracts. So, you know, I, th- I think mentality is a big part and, and, and finding a way. But I think that uh, when things weren't going well, if you were to approach a coach back in the day, that would have been seen as a, as a weakness to tell them that, you know, you were lacking confidence and lacking belief, everything which I was at that particular time, because especially when you move for for big money, I mean, I was a laughing stock in the national, you know, national press. That, that's just the nature of what happened. Some of, some of the criticism was, was fair. Uh, some of it was well over the top and unfair. And, you know, what people don't necessarily, don't necessarily understand is the effect it can have on on your on the fat on your family yeah. members because you had kids by me. then so you had a couple of kids by then yeah yeah i had a couple and i mean a, a lady approached my wife in london one day and uh, and they had my shirts on and um and the woman said what's i got what i got his shirt on for uh, he's he's rubbish and my wife said oh that's that's their dad you're talking about and one of the boys had tears in his eyes uh, and what have you, and that you know, I mean, that's that's things like that, you know. That's a hell of a thing. You, I mean, even yeah, you you would be a couple of decades you, on. No, that's got to yeah. really hurt, especially when it's your children. Yeah, I'm not so sure they wore my shirts after that, but they um, <laughs> listen. At a certain they, point, all kids think their dad's an arsehole. They don't need someone in a shopping centre yeah. to tell them that. But um, but is it so? So, but but in seriousness about that time, it, I guess also with football. So you know, doing what I do now if you have a bad gig, you're very exposed. Like you could be in front of hundreds or thousands of people, depending what it is you're doing. And if it goes badly, there's nowhere to hide and it's on you and you Mm. are very much in public. But the 
level of feeling about football you know and again I'm not I'm not massively into football but I am aware that I'm in the minority and that a hell of a lot of people it's kind of means the world to them so I guess if if you've got Chelsea supporters or, or people who follow the game everyone's got an opinion and they know who you are so it's not like I could have a really bad gig in Birmingham and then I can go for a drink in Dorset and no one knows who I am at a certain point were you just getting were you getting recognized everywhere and getting kind of crap wherever you went did it get to that point of lacking yeah, in anonymity um, yeah. I think that you know that's fair and it's you know it's it's difficult because in your in your sort of darkest you know doubt 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 was a big thing back then then for me but how do you know it's how you overcome that really and uh and know, how do you overcome that the, the way I, the way I over, overcame or overcome anything is you know going back to the days uh, you know always think back to the days with, with my dad and what he would say and it's just it's literally train harder you know push yourself uh, and and get I knew I wasn't a bad player because I'd I'd had the career up until then but I knew that something wasn't quite right so it it was all back down to really. Training, go back to training. Uh, I went on a family holiday and didn't see my family on the family holiday because I just trained. So, you know, after the year at Chelsea, I, you know, trained so hard on that holiday because, you know, I wanted to get back on track in uh, in my career as much as anything. And by then and you transferred that, clubs. And yeah, I transferred clubs. But, but in, in many respects, I didn't have any choice, really. You know, what, what were my options, really? My, my options were... Uh, feeling sorry for myself, you know, being a national laughing stock, where you know there were caricatures of me in the, you know, in the paper, and you know, uh, or sort of picking myself up and thinking, well, you know what, what, you know what, what, what option did I have really? And there was only one option, and that was to to train harder. And do you know what? If if it hadn't worked out, and I'd gone on the family holiday and worked as hard as I could, and I'd I'd fallen off the, you know, the wagon and out of the game then that would have been so be it. But I didn't I didn't think that would happen. But everybody has doubts and it's it's how you overcome that. And I, I, I don't think there's any special remedy for that other than other than graft and hard work. And that's really everything uh that I've known. I you know I, I definitely wouldn't have ever described myself as a natural talent. Um really but look yeah looking back now Everything which I've, I've I've got up to this point, even my work in the you know in the media industry, I think is from from hard work and looking and studying uh, you know people who who I respect on the on the television or listen to on air. I've got a Norfolk accent, which is a you know which is a disaster in terms. It's a very of, light one. You must have uh, you've done a good. You're either masking it well, or I've lost my capacity <laughs> to notice. You don't sound very Norfolk. I know a few people who sound a lot more Norfolk than you. Oh, but that's, I don't know. Is that a compliment? Um, well, I, you were sort of implying that if you had a strong Norfolk <laughs> accent, it would be hard to make it as a broadcaster. Yeah, I, I, I don't know, it's, but you know, I'm proud of uh, you know, I'm proud of my roots. But you know, I am. But no, I, you know. And that's that's the thing. That's the message I try and send, you know, to my kids about the importance of hard work and you know, similar thing. It doesn't matter what what they uh, become or what line. You know, I don't. I haven't pushed them in. The are any of them in, are any of them in the sporting? Well, I should probably know if if one of them is like one of the country's best players. I should probably know that. But are any of them in 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 football or anything uh, similar? 
they play they play uh, local sport and play to a you know a good level and they they love it the 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 the, the reason uh you know because of my sporting gra- background but the reason you know I have the same reasoning as my dad the social aspect of playing in team sports is you know, eventually you go to school and, and, and people will have their friends from school. Yeah, and, definitely. You know, yeah. For and, boys, yeah. I think football, one of the biggest mistakes I think we made with my son was that we did not get him into sport in any way. I didn't know, it's pathetic to say it, because why should a woman not do that? I didn't really know how to kick a ball about or do that. And his dad didn't do that. And then I was a single mum. And I look at it, I'm like, that was a real disservice to him because having no sport or no interest in it even not being able to talk about football at school as a boy I don't know if that's changing you know my son's mm. nearly 25 now but it was really limiting for him socially and, and I started to realize it a bit too late I was like oh god you know he should have been doing more of this and maybe he wouldn't have been a complete natural but it would have been a real helpful thing for him to know how yeah. to do but I suppose that doesn't it doesn't have to you know sport was the route which my family knew and and you know the social aspects of my you know my eldest son is is uh now captain of a local cricket club and you know it's it, it's 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 lovely saturday they go and play cricket a few beers after the game some of them you know go off out into the city to the clubs and what have you there's a nice social aspect there's a there's a nice network it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be sport but i think uh do you, you not know, think for boys though... club, if, if you if you have a you know the reason i encourage my children to be part of a club it's because of the social social aspect. When you when when you are at school, in many respects, you're you're not thrown into a class, but you you know you are. But but if you have an interest outside of school, you all have that common interest. That's a great starting point, I think. So For it, sure, know, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't have to be football. Doesn't have to. You know, it doesn't have to be cricket. It, you know, it, 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 it can be any activity. It's finding your something. tribe, isn't it? And belonging yeah. somewhere as a kid. And do you think, but, and I don't know if this has changed, and I know that everything in regard to gender has changed so much even in the last two, three years. But do you think for boys in particular, or certainly when, you know, some of your kids are similar age to my kids, um, you went and had six, so you're spanning a lot more age ranges than me. But do you think it has changed in terms of the pressure specifically with sport and specifically football? Like boys need to kind of, in school, be into that in some way? Do you think that does is still social currency? And that if you're a sporty kid, it's always been traditional, isn't it? The sporty kids are the popular kids. Do you think that is still a, a thing? Or do you think that that's, that's changed? Um, I don't know. Gaming's the thing now, isn't it? Which everybody's... My son does Dungeons and Dragons. He's a dungeon master, which is not as it sounds. And apparently that is a that's a cool thing. I didn't realize I thought that was some nerdy weird thing, but apparently that's a cool. Apparently I I was at backstage with Ed Byrne at a panel show we did, and my son had come to watch and I went off to talk to my agent. I came back and Ed Byrne and my and my son were cracking open another beer and Ed Byrne was sitting there like, you know, and it turned out Ed Byrne is also a dungeon master. So they were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. I was like, I did not see this coming. Oh, <laughs> so that was their that was their Dungeons and Dragons bonding. So apparently some people who aren't complete nerds do do Dungeons and Dragons. I'm sure there are some listeners now going, of course, we're not complete nerds. So do you think it's more about finding your tribe than it is necessarily yes. about sport per se? Absolutely, and I think it's—I think it's so so important. You know, it—you put it better than me. Finding your tribe, all my children, and they're sort of differing. And in, in, I mean, they're all—they're all reasonably fit. Some train harder than others, but it's just important for you. You know, for you, it does whether it's walking, whatever it is. You know, just getting outside. The, the gaming thing. 
I, uh, you know, I, and phones. I mean, phones drive me mad. With I know. My Did you? Because your first kids, I guess you're the same as me. So when we when we had our first kids, we weren't really using. We weren't on phones. No one had smartphones. They mm. weren't on tablets because there weren't any, as in you know, iPads and stuff. So I guess our kid, well, certainly, I don't know, your younger ones might have been young enough. They did have them. But my kids were just at the age, the last kind of generation who grew up without phones in their hands. And also it meant nowadays when I see um, parents with their kids, little kids, and they're all on their phones, mm. that wasn't an option when my kids were little because we didn't have a phone to be on them. I and I think we did we did have mobiles, but they were literally just a phone. And, you know, you, te- you texted by, because I am, you know, 107. But I do think that has a big impact. I mean, I look at with my son with his gaming if it wasn't for that, you know, he's a zookeeper and his job is really physical. So he is physically out in nature, lugging stuff about. Mm. That's a physically, deter- you know, tough job. So, you know, eight, 10 hours a day, he's physically active and often outdoors. So I kind of think, well, in his case, being gaming, it's a kind of counter to that. But if he had an office job and then he was sitting at his computer gaming, his whole life would just be sitting down looking at a computer. Mm. It, I mean, and I understand the uh, the benefits of the social aspect because that wasn't like back in the day when uh, you know I was playing Pac Man or whatever, and you couldn't speak to anybody, so they can communicate through the uh, through the gaming. But you know, I still not all my children play sport and are associated with with sporting clubs, but I still point them towards that as being life changing. Uh, you know, for them to, to be part of a, you know, a, a community, to have friends, to have the same the same interests and the same goals. I, I think that that's, you know, that's absolutely crucial. That's, that's all I've known throughout my life. Yeah. And all you can do is impart your, your, knowledge, you know, your experience yeah. on, you know, on, on, on your children to try and make their life better. And, you know, that they, they look at me, a couple of my kids, and think, you're a moron, you don't know what you're talking <laughs> if about. If only two out of the six are thinking that, you've done yeah. very well. <laughs> I've just taught my kids, you just got to, you know, have the gift of the gab, just talk shit, take people in, you'll be fine. Uh, less of a helpful life skill. Before I ask the three questions, I ask everybody, um, Chris, I just want to ask you, uh, just in terms of the, because the podcast is about work and how people balance work and, and life and what their kind of life hacks are. Is it the case that as when you've been a pro footballer for, you know, in your case, what, 16 years, something like 17 years? Yeah. yeah. Do you, have you, I'm not asking you what your um, net worth is, but have you, do you earn enough in those years at the level you were playing that you don't have to worry loads about it? Or do you, is it incumbent upon you also financially to have to find a way to find a valid career for the rest of your time? Uh, well, where we, where we live, we've, we've got a bit of land and we've got a lot of animals. So, uh, so. We've got seven dogs at the minute, nine cats and eleven horses. They're not they're not good. You horses, don't do things that you don't everything has to do, like six kids, nine it's like a sort of um yeah, yeah it's like an old nursery rhyme at your place. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to blame my wife for all the animals, but I'm going to blame her for all the animals. Uh she's uh soft, very soft with regards to animals. And and I, you know, I love I love her for it. So the horses aren't, you know, we're you know, you're not going to see me at Newmarket. Or so they've got the three National. legs and a tail between them, yeah. but your wife wants yeah. to bring uh, them into the fold. Yeah, and a lot of them are old and, uh, or, or, you know, older horses, and we give them a nice life. So, you know, they go out, we feed them every day. The, the unfortunate thing with horses is they need mucking out and plenty of care, but, you know, we can do that. And we've always, we've always loved dogs. Um, 
So if um, you were, so basically if you hadn't got an animal, an unofficial animal sanctuary, you could have retired. But because of your wife and the animals, yeah. you've still got to bring in the bucks. I think, I think that that's very fair. Namaste, motherfuckers. What would you pick, Chris, as your life-changing namaste motherfucking moment? Well, I, well this isn't going to be too sort of uh, cheery, this. Uh, but uh, so I've mentioned my... Uh, uh, my dad and uh, and my dad passed away about sixteen months ago, and he he had dementia, and and the last ten years of his life were uh, pretty you know horrible, um, and you know he'd retired from teaching, and I think him and my mum you know they had a little bit of land that they bought the house in the in the village where where we lived, and um, and thought they were going to spend the you know the years together. Uh, and his last 10 years were horrific, um, really, because of because of the dementia. Um, and the last two years were, you know, uh, in COVID and he ended up dying in a, in a nursing home on his own, which was pretty horrific because of the COVID rules. And you've seen sort of everything with the government and, you know, what's, I mean, the, the outrage. And, yeah. and, and, you know, and I understand that. But my dad had a specific type of uh, dementia, which was uh, related to heading a football and so it's it's been it's been a real eye opener for me because of how uh, the man which he was uh, as as a as a teacher and a really strong influence not just on me but on hundreds and thousands of kids who went uh, into his school and then the way that he ended his life uh, and football. Uh, is, is the biggest sport in the world financially now. But football's attitude to uh, to brain injury, quite frankly, is uh, it, it's it's so bad. It's 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 in the dark ages. And I don't I don't I don't understand it. There are logical steps which the footballing authorities can be taking, should be taking, uh, where we can help our generations to come. I don't know whether I'm, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen to me. I headed a lot of footballs. I, I stopped playing because of a concussion. I'm, I'm partially uh, sighted in my right eye because of a head injury, but football keeps kicking this can down the road. And I don't know whether you, uh, I don't know whether you follow rugby. There's, there's a guy called Steve Thompson, who was a world cup winner mm-hmm. for England, 2003. He's 43. He has four, uh, four young children and he's got early onset dementia. And he's got four young children. You think about that. It's horrific. And I, I don't, I, I, I don't, so what, what I'm trying, or what I've tried to do over the last uh, however many years, and there are other people who have been campaigning before, is push for change. And that's, uh, and that's, that's what I'm trying to achieve and want to achieve simple situations. So, regards to player welfare within football. When players have a head injury, players aren't getting the uh, the best duty of care, and you have to ask yourself why. There's a thing called a, they have a uh, a, temp- a thing called a temporary concussion replacement, which should be brought in. Which simply is, if somebody has a head injury, you can take them off the pitch to the sanctuary of a dressing room. They can be looked at by an independent doctor. The independent doctor is important because you know it obviously doesn't work for one side. Or the other. In the meantime, the team aren't numerically disadvantaged because you can put a substitute on. And if this player is all right, 
you can put him back, take, put him back onto the field of play. That isn't a big deal. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen in football. Well, you know, I'd ask why. And, and, and that could be life changing for somebody it, from what you're saying. That could literally save someone life, someone's yeah. life. And, and, yeah. and uh, you know, I don't know. This is just going to carry on and there's going to be more and more. I mean, if you if you if you played football, there's a study done in Glasgow 2019. Uh, if you if you played football, you're five times more likely um, to die of Alzheimer's, four times more likely to die of dementia, four times more likely to die of motor neuron disease, two times more likely uh, to die of Parkinson's. These are these are unequivocal facts. The, you know, the, these are out there yet. Football has all its money and and carries Doesn't on. Do and what, what, about will it. What, 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 what will happen in years to come, uh, Callie, is, is is the families of current players will say, "Why on earth didn't we do something about yeah. it? Why didn't we get a coach education plan in place for for our children so we can monitor, um, you know, our children and um, and you know how many times they they head a football? Why haven't we got the right protocol in place when they do have a head injury that we do it a particular way?" And that's so learning from my dad's situation, you know, has been life changing in what I'm pushing for and trying to achieve now. And it's it, it shouldn't be like this. Well, let me know if there are any links or anything we can put in the show notes for the episode as well that might help people sort of get more um, information about that or anything anyone can do that might shine a light on that. Let us know. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. And, um, well, you've made it really hard for me to segue into my second question, which is, what's your favourite joke? But listen, this podcast is all about dichotomies. So I'm going from that really important topic to humour. What is your favourite joke? Do you know, I, I put this on the family chat, um, but you, you're going to think this is awful. And you, you'd have heard this uh, many times. <laughs> I'm really quite nervous in trying to tell a joke. I've always had to land a joke, apologise a lot, and then do it. That's what I do on stage. It works the treat. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so my favourite joke is a horse walked into a bar and the barman said, why the long face? <laughs> I, I love that great. joke. That is a good joke. Did you, did you share it on the family chat saying this is the one I'm going to use? Or My daughter told me not to. but And your uh, daughter's I, 10. So. She's 10, yeah. She told me not to use it, but then she she couldn't come up with a better alternative. Tell your daughter she was wrong, and I like the joke. And also, we haven't had the joke yet on the podcast. We've had a lot of jokes on this podcast. <laughs> that might well make our Christmas cracker bonus episode, actually, Chris. And if it I know, does... I noticed you said that might well. <laughs> well, it might, you know. It, it might. <laughs> no, we like the show. That's a good Christmas cracker joke, you see. It might well make that episode because it is a good Christmas. We've got comedians coming on doing shaggy dog stories, referring us to YouTube clips. So, yeah. Um, so thank you. Tell your daughter I liked it. <laughs> and if you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, Chris, what would it be? Um, but especially, we, um, you know, in in these times, you know, it's been tough with. Um, I think the last couple of years with COVID, what's going on with Ukraine at the minute, sort of families being displaced. Uh, and I, I get up every morning and think about how I can better things for myself and my family. Uh, and a lot of people have all these thoughts all the time, but it's actually turning these thoughts into, into a positive action, really. So, you know, my advice would be don't just think about things get out there and do them. Do, 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 do.
was Chris Sutton. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I am going to do. And this week, our conversation about the 10,000 hours theory, that's the theory that with 10,000 hours of practice, you can become an expert in pretty much anything you decide to focus on, reminded me that even though I do talk about 10,000 hours quite a bit in coaching and on stage and such like, I haven't actually read Malcolm Gladwell's book Outliers in a very long time, probably since the year it came out. I can't remember when that was, but it's a while ago now. But I do have it in the downstairs toilet get me with my downstairs toilet so i'm going to give it a dust down take it off the shelf and have another look at it um, we put a link to outliers in the show notes if you don't know Ma- malcolm gladwell's stuff i'm sure you probably do um, it's worth a read outliers and tipping point is also good um, and as well as uh, the link to malcolm gladwell's stuff we've also put information in the show notes about chris's campaign to bring about change when it comes to the serious health risks to players including brain injury and dementia so that is it for this week thank you so so much for listening please do remember to rate review and recommend the show and we will be back in your feed next thursday as always when i will be talking to comedian actor and writer laura lex i think a lot of being the sunny persona it is who i am and i do like making people happy but i think it probably is tied in with an anxious thing of am i good enough Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.